Now please turn with me to Exodus chapter 19 if you have your Bibles. Exodus chapter 19. As we come to Exodus 19 this morning, we really have come to the climax or the turning point of the book of Exodus. As busy and complicated as the book of Exodus is, I really do think that it follows a basic twofold division. Chapters 1 through 18, and then chapters 19 through 40, all the way to the end. Basically, part 1 in chapters 1 through 18. It's getting Israel out of Egypt. It's the plagues, the Red Sea, the initial wilderness journey. And then part 2, starting here in chapter 19, it's getting Israel established in God and in his ways. Or, put another way, it's getting Israel out of Egypt, part 1. And then part two, getting Egypt out of Israel. Getting Israel physically rescued out of slavery in part one, but then part two, spiritually, getting Egypt and her pagan ways, her idolatrous ways, out of Israel. Because after 400 years surrounded with idolatry and pagan Egypt, it's time to get her paganism out of the souls of Israel. God has rescued you, children of Israel. Now, here's how to walk before him as his redeemed people. So that's what we'll be thinking about from chapter 19 all the way to chapter 40, broadly. And chapters 19 and 20 really are the heart of the book of Exodus, Sinai. This is one of those, Exodus 19 and 20, those two chapters, this is really one of those Mount Everest passages in Scripture, in my estimation. All Scripture is inspired, of course, all of it is God-breathed, but Israel at Sinai, for the giving of the law, this is one of those great passages of Holy Scripture. So we'll look to it now. First, we will read God's Word in Exodus chapter 19, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help and blessing as we study it together. So let's look now. You follow along as I read from Exodus chapter 19. This is God's holy word, beloved. Take care how we all hear it. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, They came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness, where Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down 
on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. May he write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Let's pray as we study it together. Our Father, your holy word is spread before us. As these Bibles are opened, we pray that our hearts will be opened as well. Grant us your Holy Spirit's ministry, that ministry of illumination, that we may understand your word as it is read, as it is preached, that your word, the sword of the Spirit, living and active as it is, it would penetrate our hearts, and your power would be wielded, and your will would be done in all of us, for we ask it in Jesus' holy name, amen. The king, not you, and not me, but the king sets the terms of how you may meet with him. This is true if you were to see King Charles on the street over in England and you tried to approach him. Uh, we have a few different accounts of this happening with the late Queen Elizabeth when she was alive. Uh, one friend reminded me of the story a while ago. It was reported in the British newspapers. Occasionally, some exuberant children with flowers would rush over to see the queen, and before they knew it, the police had pounced on them before they could get to the monarch because in our sick and strange world it might be a security threat of some sort, so you just don't rush upon royalty. Now in those situations, the queen saw the commotion and she beckoned the children to come meet with her and, they, and she happily received the flowers and it all turned out well. But the point is, nevertheless, the monarch sets the terms of how you may approach him. This is evident in Exodus chapter 19. 
there is a great and mighty king who came down to meet Israel at Sinai. And the truth is, God, the Lord, the king, establishes, he himself establishes the terms of the relationship. So three things I want us to see from the text this morning. This was an outline in one of the commentaries, actually several different commentaries, and I thought we couldn't approve upon it, so we'll make use of it ourselves. Calling, we see that in verses 1 through 9. And then consecration, we see that in verses 10 through 15. And then thirdly, condescension, we see that in verses 16 through 25. Calling, consecration, and condescension. Here are the terms of how we, that is you, Israel, and how we, people of God, Here's how we may meet with the great king. So let's first, let's look at verses 1 through 9. Calling. Calling. And really there are three calls under this first point that we can find here. And you can find them at verses 4, 5, and 6. The first call under this first point of calling you might see there at verses 3 and 4. We might call that the call of redemption. Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's a picture, it's a reminder, it's a description of redemption, rescue, saving grace. That's what the Lord is rehearsing there. God is reminding them of what he has done. He called Israel, his son, out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery. God intervened. He freed them. He brought them to himself. He bore them on eagles' wings. Notice they were passive. He was sovereignly active in redemptive grace and saving love, and he brought them to himself. And see, here is the basis upon which everything else in chapters 19 and 20 rests. Do notice this, and let us not quickly pass this over, before God gets to the instructions, before he gets to the Ten Commandments, before he hands down his holy law, he summons their attention and he reminds them of their identity. You are mine, O Israel. You're my people. I've drawn you to myself. Israel's obedience is not the basis of their relationship to God. It is rather the response to the grace of God. Their obedience is a necessary part of a relation to God, yes, but it's a relationship which had already been established by his sovereign grace. Grace precedes law. Grace precedes law. It's grace, it's redemption, it's salvation, and then the fashioning of a holy people. You see, this is what Luther grappled with, Martin Luther, the great reformer, until the light dawned on him, studying the epistle to the Romans. If you know anything of Luther's biography, you'll remember he had this formula wrong for so long, and it drove him to a kind of existential despair. See, friends, if we get this order wrong, then we've gotten the truths of the Reformation wrong. We get this wrong, and we've got the gospel wrong, brothers and sisters. God sunders our shackles of sin. He breaks the bonds. He scatters our hell-bound darkness and night by the work of the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus, bearing us on eagles' wings and drawing us to himself. It's the call of redemption. The call of redemption. 
But then, then, even as this little preface here in Exodus 19 reminds us of, there's another call still under this first point. So verses 3 and 4, there's a call of redemption, but then there at verse 5, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Here, this second call, we might call a call to holiness. Now, what does holiness mean fundamentally? Well, it means to be set apart. Israel shall be God's set apart people, his holy people, his, as the text says, his treasured possession. Don't you love that language there? His treasured possession. It's a call to holiness or distinctness that Israel is to have. God desires obedience. He wants covenant-keeping people, or excuse me, he wants covenant-keeping from his people. But do notice that it is therefore, in in our Bible translations as we're reading it. Now, I know it sounds cliche, but whenever you come across this word in Holy Scripture, particularly in Paul's writings in the New Testament, but really anywhere in Scripture, we have to zero in on that therefore word and ask, to what is it referring? Therefore is a consequence Grammatically, because something has occurred, because something has taken place, therefore there is a consequent result. You see here in these verses, 3, 4, and 5, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5, now therefore be holy. Holiness is a therefore. It is always a consequence, a fruit of God's redeeming grace and mercy. Do you see that? It is in response to God's sovereign, redeeming love and grace that they are to obey and keep his covenant. I have redeemed you, O Israel. I have rescued you. By grace, I have ransomed you. I have done this. You're saved. You're mine. I've brought you to myself. Therefore, be my holy people. You're mine. Therefore, be my holy people and live accordingly. So many of the difficulties that vex Christians, I am persuaded, so many of the difficulties that vex Christians, because I've had enough discussions about it, are really a result of misunderstanding this fundamental principle. Which comes first? Law or gospel? Faith or obedience? And the answer is grace first. As one commentary put it, redemption precedes and enables consecration. Redemption precedes and enables consecration. There is no holiness, there is no obedience that God will ever accept that doesn't flow out of his work in you and for you, setting you free from the bondage of slavery and sin by the redemption paid by Jesus Christ. Holiness is always a therefore, a subsequent consequence. Hence, verse 5, now therefore, consecrate yourselves and be obedient to my voice. We've noted this before, speaking about Ephesians and all of Paul's epistles, really. Even the way the Apostle Paul structures his letters is a reflection of that order. It's always doctrine in the first half of his letter, and then ethics in the second part of his letter. Indicative, and then imperative. Gospel, and then response to the gospel. First half or so, this is what Paul does. Here's what God has done. In his glorious, sovereign rescuing and ransoming of sinners by grace in Jesus Christ, his son. Here's what he's done for his people. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And then, 
in light of that truth, in the second part of his letters, he goes on and says, this is how you should then live. Romans chapter 12 is perhaps the classic example of this. Yeah, in Romans, you read through the epistle to the Romans, you get this grand survey of the gospel in chapters 1 through 11. Here's what God has done. Here's the problem of sin. Here's how Christ redeems sinners. Here's how the engrafting of, the, of Israel and the Gentiles is going to play out. All he does this in Romans 1 through 11, and then you get to the page of the first verse of Romans chapter 12. Now, therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer yourselves living sacrifices. Now, therefore, in light of the gospel, obey my commands. Live like this, my people. That's how it always is. Holiness, it is an important matter in our day and age, absolutely. In no way, in no way whatsoever are we downplaying that need. We live in an antinomian age, I'm persuaded. We have fought that battle in our own denomination in recent years. We still are in some ways. You all know we have public officials, civil magistrates, who claim to be professing Christians that are living lifestyles absolutely out of accord with the call of holiness that God's people are called to live. So holiness matters. Holiness matters absolutely. Holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. We read that in Hebrews 12 just a few minutes ago. Holiness matters. But at the same time, the order in which holiness comes in the Christian life also matters very, very much. It seems like for so many of God's people, there's always this temptation to invert the biblical order, to, to place my works, my obedience, my, my keeping and doing before His grace and put my doing, my moral effort, my good works in the place of priority and to give it primary importance. Well, I love how one man put it. He says, when we do that, what happens is either we rewrite the standards of God, making them less demanding so that we feel we can keep them, and then we begin to strut and preen and swell in self-reliance and pride. That happens. Or we recognize the holy standard of God and we see how far short of them we consistently fall, and then we collapse into self-reproach and despair. But either way, we're trying to live trusting in our own performance rather than on God's grace. Close quote. If we understand holiness rightly, brothers and sisters, we understand there's good news here. Because it is not get your act together, do better, try harder, Get with the program and you might get into my kingdom. No, no. It is God has redeemed. God has brought you to himself. He's done it. You're his. You're always his. You are ever in the palm of his hand. You are ever his people. And the shackles which bound you, they bind you no more. You're not a slave anymore, Israel. You're not a slave anymore, Christian. Sin is not your tyrannical master. You don't have to listen to him anymore. You're free. You've been released, liberated, given a new heart. You don't have to pay any heed to his stupid lying words any longer. A new status, new heart, new affections are yours. New power resides within you. God, the Holy Spirit, is your master. Sin ain't your master anymore. And so therefore, because your soul and your will and your affections and your abilities are at liberty... Because God has showered grace upon grace upon you and he's made you his. Because of this, here's how to live as my child. Here's how to live. Grace and then 
rescue and redemption, and then, therefore, holiness. Live for him. Now, under this first point, we're still under the first point, which is a bit longer than the other points, but we've seen the call of redemption and then the call to holiness, and we must make sure we get that order right. But notice that also there's a call to service here or a call to ministry. Notice verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the whole earth is mine. You see, Israel, among all the nations of the world, they were to be special and privileged, and they have a work to do. They've been given a mission. They've been given a task, yes? Here's the assignment. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is evocative of later New Testament language. The church, under the new covenant, has a similar redeemed assignment, don't we? Remember 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you notice that in verse 5 that holiness and usefulness are connected? Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. To put it another way, your obedience or your lack of obedience, it doesn't increase your justification. It doesn't increase or decrease your election, making you more secure. But it does impact your usefulness, beloved brothers and sisters. Mine too. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. That's what Robert Murray McShane said. And what's true of ministers is true of all God's people. It's not great talents so much that God blesses as great likeness to Jesus. God delights to use clean vessels. Our holiness is tied intimately with our usefulness, to our usefulness with, for him. And just like Israel of old, we do have a story to tell to the nations. We have a call to proclaim his glory and grace, and we have a duty to serve him, to worship him in the splendor of holiness. Serve and worship, by the way, are the same verb in Hebrew, serve and worship. We have a call to worship him in the splendor of holiness, to serve him as our great God and Savior. We are to be the church. We are to be a holy nation that proclaims his excellencies and gives him worship that is due his name. So may God make us holy so as to make us useful so that his praise might be proclaimed throughout East Tennessee, throughout the world, throughout this city, and beyond. So calling, that's the first thing we need to see in our passage this morning, calling. A call of redemption, a call to holiness, and then also a call to service. But then secondly, more briefly, verses 10 through 15, here we see consecration. God tells Moses to tell the people he's going to come down the mountain in three days, and they were to get ready. Verse 10, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. Do you know verse 12? They were not to come near the mountain, not even to touch it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. <laughs> Here's the great counterbalance that we need, especially as we think about holiness. Grace comes first, holiness comes second. God has saved them, they are secure. And since they are now God's, they can approach God casually, right? 
They can approach God as they jolly well please. Yes? Not so fast. Again, verse 12. Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Here's the thing. The Lord our God is full of kindness and compassion. He is abounding in mercy. He is plenteous in his grace toward his people. But he's still God. He's holy. We must approach him as the great king who is enshrouded in holiness. But Jesus makes everything better and easier, right? Well, in a sense, but that doesn't mean we approach the great king of the cosmos flippantly. Well, that's just, one of, that's just an Old Testament notion, isn't it? God is a God of severity, and then that severity just goes away in the New Testament, right? Well, no. One of my favorite New Testament books is Hebrews. That's why we read Hebrews chapter 12 to coincide with our sermon this morning. It reminds us that Mount Sinai was surrounded by earthly outward displays, thunder and lightning and smoke and terrifying for all who saw it. No one was allowed to come close. But we who have come to know Jesus Christ, we've come to something grander, much more glorious and exalted. Hebrews 12, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering to the general assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have it better. We have come not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. We are citizens of the new Jerusalem. Israel had to dwell below at the foot of the mountain, But we have been brought above, not just with the 12 tribes of Israel, but with those from every tribe and tongue and nation. We've been brought to the general assembly. My Presbyterian heart just loves that phrase, by the way. The general assembly of the firstborn in heaven. Yes, it's glorious, it's splendid, it's better, it's wonderful. But that does not mean that we may now be carefree or flippant when it comes to approaching our great God. Listen to how Hebrews 12 goes on. Hebrews 12, 25, and 28. We do have superior blessings, but we also have greater seriousness. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who had warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Jesus called his disciples friends, yes, but he is still God the Lord. And really, if the need for seriousness and holiness was as great as it was at Sinai, how much more? That's the argument of Hebrews, really. How much more seriously should we take it now? We, with the greater privilege, enjoying the blessings and delights and the splendors of the new covenant, we who know Christ as Lord, how much more so should we approach God with the awe and reverence that he is due? I wonder if we think about that as we hop in the car and drive up here to the hill, up here to Commerce Park in Oak Ridge. It's the Lord's Day. We're driving to worship. We're coming to worship. We're coming to meet with God. How's our attitude? How's our heart as we're preparing to do so? Is it cold? 
Is it indifferent? Is it glib and unprepared? Parents, how about as we're getting the kids ready? How was our temper? How was our attitude this morning? Does it set the tone, a tone that is conducive to God-glorifying worship, preparing to meet a holy Lord? Let us approach God with reverence and awe, the Scripture says. That's not at all at odds with the gospel of God's marvelous grace. Actually, the evidence of one whose soul has been touched with the gospel of grace is not one who comes to God with a flippant familiarity, but rather adoring wonder and reverence, a heart, an attitude that streams from a heart of gladness and gratitude from one that knows that this God, this great and awesome King, has made us His children. So consecration, that's the second thing. And then finally and briefly, condescension. Condescension. God comes down to His people. That's what condescension means. Look at verses 16 to 25. At verse 14, it says, wash your garments. It's a, it's a tactile reinforcement that ought to be the condition of their hearts. Get ready. Get prepared. God is coming. He's going to meet with you. Be clean. Verse 15, it's telling them to abstain from sexual relations. As Calvin said, not that there was anything sinful about the marriage bed, of course not, but rather carnal affections should be put away for the time that they might give their entire attention to the hearing of the law. So then verse 16. On the third day, God comes down in fire on the mountaintop. The earth quakes and there's thunder and lightning. The mountains surrounded in smoke. A trumpet begins to sound as Israel assembles, growing louder and louder. Everyone trembles in holy fear. And verse 24, only Moses and Aaron are permitted to go into the presence of God. They are the mediators, the representatives. Moses speaks. God answers back in thunder. In thunder! Dramatic, terrifying. But do note how the whole chapter begins and ends with good news. How? Well, remember, it begins with God reminding Israel how he had brought his people out of bondage. He redeemed them. And then it ends with a white, a picture. It ends with a picture of a holy God come down. A God whose fiery, white-hot holiness will obliterate any who dare come near. And yet, this same God makes provision through a mediator. A mediator will go on behalf of the people. And he will go into God's presence and he will speak the words, the people's words to the Lord and he will bring the Lord's words to the people. He will not be obliterated. God will communicate with his people and thus the people are safe, even in the presence of this holy God. It is, in type and shadow, a picture of the work of Jesus Christ. This is precisely what God has done in Christ Jesus. God come down, all the way down to earth, even to the point of taking on flesh. God, the Son, our mediator, standing in the gap between a holy God and we, a sinful, wretched, cursed people, interceding for us, making a way that we might be consecrated, that we might dwell safely in the presence of God again to restore what Adam lost in Eden and greater yet, this one, born of the Virgin Mary, born the babe of Bethlehem, the man of Calvary, the only mediator between God and man, the one who has gone up into the presence of God for us, ascended on high where he ever lives to intercede, to mediate for us, the God who came down, shaking the earth and thundering at Sinai, is God the Lord Jesus Christ, 
in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. This is in type and shadow a picture of exactly what Christ has done for his people. And this is what we have to realize. Our problem is sin that excludes us from the presence of a holy God. This is the message of Exodus 19. God is holy. We dare not toy with him. And we would have no hope of drawing near to him unless we had a mediator, one who would and could go into his presence on our behalf so that we are not obliterated but are made safe. We have such a mediator. It's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He is himself the living God, and yet he has brought us to that better mountain, better than Sinai. Did you notice verse 23? The people cannot come. They, have to, they set limits. Only the priests and Moses and Aaron may come near. And yet, because of Christ, in this new and better covenant, while Israel was relegated to remain at the base of the mountain, you and I are exhorted, according to Hebrews 10, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, let us draw near. Israel at Sinai, stay back. Stay there. New covenant Christian, you draw near. The curtain's been rendered. You draw near to Christ. Come near. There is one seated on the throne, great and awesome in holiness, the great king thundering at Sinai, and you get to call him Abba, Father. And you may draw near in confidence and ever safe and secure before him and in him, in Christ. Your great mediator is Jesus Christ, and through him we have access to the ear of the great king. Our God is a consuming fire, and we must come to him with reverence and awe. But Jesus Christ is our mediator, and in him God has, in the words of Exodus 19, borne us on eagles' wings and brought us to himself so that this great king, thundering at Sinai, is become to us Abba, Father. Bless God for his word to us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and we do bless you for it. We have spent time in it, and we've spent time with you, and we pray that your spirit has dealt with our souls as you have seen fit, and that we would come away from this time in nearness to you, O God, changed people, not the same. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.